1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As you know, we are, uh, we are big fans of presidential trivia, obscure presidential facts, uh, more untold and, dare I say, ridiculous stories throughout the, uh, the, the history of this fine nation of ours. I'm Ben. These here United States, Ben? hmm The very same. Me being Noel. <laughs> All things being equal. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and where would we be without our super producer, Casey Pagram? Let's give it up for him. <laughs> And, long-time listeners, you may recall that in our most recent presidential episode, we explored the story of George Washington's little-known but incredibly formative adventures in Barbados. Short-time listeners,
0: even. That was only like four, three episodes ago.
1: That's true, yeah. Right. And I wonder, let us know if you are if you actually listen to these in order, or if you just jump around, and you're like, I don't know, April 2017, that sounds like a winner. You're really
0: missing out if you aren't doing it in order, because there is continuity here, my friends. There are little... <laughs> Easter eggs. We're building
1: a world here, you We're guys. We're building, yeah, the, the uh, R-H-C-U. Exactly. Uh, but if you will recall from that earlier episode, and also I don't remember whether our show was around in April of 2017. It's possible. Is it possible? No way of knowing. We've, we've, <laughs>
3: Casey? <laughs> this is, yeah, this is impossible information to find. It's just lost to the sands of time. So.
1: Casey on the case. Dun, dun. What about that new sound cue? It's pretty great. Uh, the other one was getting a little too expensive. <laughs> so yeah. Way less expensive. Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf <laughs> sent us a
0: cease and desist
1: finally. <laughs> yeah, that guy's like the Shug Knight. Of daytime procedural, I mean, you crime gotta traumas. be with a name like Dick Wolf. It's you know. an amazing name. Uh, speaking of amazing names, if you tuned in to our episode on George Washington Barbados, you'll recall that we did not, uh, we did not sally forth into that story alone. We were joined by a good friend of ours, friend of the show, our research associate Ryan Barish, and Ryan is here today. In this episode as well, Uh, Ryan, thanks so much for coming back, man.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me back, guys.
0: Dude, it's a pleasure. And I have to I have to paint a picture here. Ryan is wearing an amazing tie-dye right now that says uh, spent a little time in the mountain, Folsom Field, Boulder, Colorado, July 5th and 6th, 2019. Is this some sort of hippie concert? Is this a Grateful Dead situation?
3: Yeah, it was the um last Grateful Dead concert or Dead and Company concert on this tour. Oh nice. Did you go? I didn't. I was invited to go for Andrew's bachelor party. Oh yeah, a mutual friend of ours, yeah. Andrew, whose last name is escaping me. Lewandis, but Lewandis. He, made the
0: shirt. he does show for all kinds oh, of cool bands like
1: Vampire that. Weekend and, and the, the Dead and Company. So you said, I'm not going to go, but give me the shirt. Hope your marriage works out. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, basically. exactly. <laughs> that.
1: You're more of a fair-weather dead
0: fan, right? right.
3: Yeah. yeah. What's uh, it, what are
0: they called? Deadheads? Deadheads, yeah. Okay. That's right. Not, not to be confused with Parrot Heads, which is fans of Jimmy Buffett. Or Gizheads? Gizheads, which is which I learned the, about the King Giz and the Liz Whiz. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually saw, I was in Los Angeles recently, uh, and I saw John Mayer at a restaurant, and he is devilishly Handsome, let me tell you. Yeah, I mean, I
3: would love to look like that when I'm like 46 <laughs> exactly. or whatever. You know, he's
1: ageless. <laughs> Apparently, very problematic character, though. Well, also, uh, just in defense of anybody who has felt the same way, or like if you've ever looked at a celebrity and thought, wow, they look great for their age and all that stuff. In in your defense, no, yours, Ryan, and yours, not that you need it, Casey. Uh, and everyone listening, th- keep in mind, those people have teams of folks who are paid. As like a paid a living wage to only worry about, you know, that person's teeth or that person's skin care or their weird, you know, wart. Like, do we keep it? Is it good PR? Do we get rid of it? You know what I mean? So there's an army behind that. And speaking of weird segues, uh, we so often think of uh, enormously influential historical figures, you know, popes and prime ministers and presidents and so on as these sort of standalone episodes of human history, right? But as we saw with George Washington and as we've seen with every historical figure, once you dig a little deeper, they are the results or sort of an aggregate in many ways of all the amazing people and experiences they had before they became, you know, the lauded individual they're known as today, like, Jimmy Carter.
0: Jimmy Carter, indeed, and I've always—he's always been an interesting figure to me, and I'm sure you as well, Ben, because he looms large here in our fair city of Atlanta, Georgia. We yeah. have the Carter Center, which apparently has a lovely koi pond behind it. I just found out.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, it looks like Casey had some experience with that. I would take good makeout spot. Yeah, I would take a. I would take a date there, especially if I really liked her. We'd go out to this this neat little kind of hidden garden. It's got a great view of the city if you're ever in town. Uh, and also, they don't charge you to just go there uh, with a picnic basket, right? right? It's, a, it's a cool little gym if you ever want to have a, a learning experience. And Ryan, you actually, you, you've done some work there, right?
3: Yeah, you know, in addition to being the Presidential Library and Koi Pond and also a great farmer's market, they have a... Very large presidential archive uh, for President Carter's work and his foundation's work. And it actually has the archive of of most of his family members as well.
0: I think he's almost more famous for his, you know, his foundation than he is as doing a great job as being president, right?
3: Yeah, he uh, had—his presidency was not one of the most successful ones. It is divisive even in Georgia to talk about his time in office. We see him— as kind of a philanthropist, someone working for human rights. Him and Rosalind Carter have a great organization. um, And it's housed actually at the house that General Sherman took over when he seized Atlanta. Um, So it's a pretty prominent part of Atlanta. It's why you have the great view of downtown. So that was a complete non sequitur. But what we're going to talk about is related to the military and kind of the reason behind Jimmy Carter's idea or desire to join the United States Navy, he was actually inspired by his his uncle on his mother's side, um, Thomas Watson Gordy, not the populist senator slash presidential candidate from Georgia, Thomas Watson, who he was named after. Yeah, I would have thought that immediately. Yeah. Um, a, I,
1: I'm, I'm kidding. I, I don't know who that is. You're like always working Thomas Watson, <laughs> exactly. the populist Georgia exactly. senator in the conversation. I uh, love a good populist.
3: <laughs> But we're recording this on a special day because it Mm. is Thomas Watson Gordy's birthday today. So he would have been 113. Let's do the birthday math. I think that's right. Yeah. September 19th, Uh 1906. 1906. Yeah. He was from a large family, uh, had eight total children. He was, as said before, President Jimmy Carter's mother was one of them. But when he was married and was starting a young family, it was in the middle of the Great Depression. So he was looking to provide for his family during the difficult time, and what he did in order to do that was uh, enroll in the Navy. It's something that a lot of young men did at this period because you couldn't really see the world, there wasn't a lot of money, and the military ensured a comfortable living.
0: I mean, hell, people still do that to this day, or at least kids I grew up with who didn't do super well in high school and wanted to see the world and didn't have any money, join the Navy, you know, or join the military.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think— the military, if nothing else, is a, a, good, a good thing to help you experience different cultures, to travel, and to be stationed abroad. So this is something that enticed Gordy to do this, um, in addition to having the, the young children and wife back home. He would send postcards to his family, not just his immediate family, but his sister and Jimmy Carter would read these postcards, and it was something that got him thinking about actually starting his own naval career. At this point, I think he was in his late teens getting ready to graduate high school. So um, these cards kind of arrived at a time when he was eligible to enlist in the military.
1: So we talked about this a little bit off air. And one thing that I found fascinating here was that not only have uh, none of us, including Casey, heard of Thomas Watson Gordy before, but a lot of our listeners, even those who consider themselves fairly uh, well, well-read Jimmy Carter buffs specifically may not know that much about Thomas Watson Gordy because he's kind of hard to search for. And you had to do some real digging to learn about this guy, right?
3: Yeah, at best, you'll see uh, Gordy's name come up maybe in a memoir or a biography about Jimmy Carter in reference to his political campaign. He used it a lot on the campaign trail um, to explain kind of as an antidote as, uh, as to why he joined the military and also, as we'll find out later, as kind of a tale of forgiveness and, um, and redemption. So he references him almost as this like mythic figure, almost like a, a parable. But there isn't a lot of information. If you do a search on, on Tom Watson Gordy, at best you come up with sort of genealogy websites and, and kind of obituary pages. Yep, did that about 10 minutes ago, came up with nothing. Yeah, he's, um, he's not well-known, but fortunately, he at least set the groundwork for him to become well-known because while he was, um, once he had returned, so spoiler, he does return, he created a pretty detailed manuscript um, telling his time. He was also able to keep a diary while he was abroad. And that's pretty odd, as you'll find out, because while he was stationed abroad, it was a time where he didn't necessarily have the most freedom.
0: I got to ask you, Ryan, um, this being uh, sort of a deep, deep historical cut, um, what was it that fascinated you about this guy that made you kind of want to like dig in and, and find out everything you could about him?
3: One of my hobbies is is locating someone or a piece of history that hasn't really been explored. So I was working with uh, one of my professors who talked about uh, Jimmy Carter's archives and mentioned that there's a lot of just familiar content. So there's there's pages and pages of of different family members, personal belongings in this archive. So I started speaking with the head archivist there and just asked if you had if he had any diaries or manuscripts or something on kind of an auxiliary family member. And it was fortunate that it ended up being someone that that did play a role in Jimmy Carter's life, but also someone who kind of has a big throughway in kind of mid-century America his his life wasn't uncommon compared to many veterans of the Pacific Theater and his life was also very parallel with just the changing time because something I find so fascinating about mid-century history um, is is existing during a period uh, like the Great Depression and also existing during like the 1960s those two periods are Completely different. Um, they're filled with uh, despair and poverty, and then excess and kind of new budding technology. I think that's a really interesting time to have have been alive.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, being born before television, right, and then uh, living to see someone land on the moon. There, there's there's a, a very dense amount of progress in those in those eras,
0: and also, I mean, like this th- this story is about to veer into some pretty fun. Uh, ridiculous, heroic kind of territory right now, too. Like, this guy, it was, on the one hand, sort of a case study in, like, what a life like this might have been, but he he got into some interesting hijinks, didn't he?
3: Yeah, the the journal that he wrote, it started just a few days before the Japanese invaded Guam and took prisoners. So this happened the day after Pearl Harbor. So there was almost no no knowledge, no information had made it to Guam yet. And when Gordy and his his uh, comrades were, I guess that's communist. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's, I think it's a word. They don't
1: own. Commerce. His his, his uh, brothers, in brothers arms, in arms, his pals. Yeah,
3: yeah. His um his brothers in arms. They they were looking around and they noticed the Japanese military coming on to the island from from multiple ports of entry and. Gordy and his, his friend, they were an operator of, like a radio operator of so they would have been the first to know, but at this point, they hadn't gotten information. There was no expectation that they would see any military action, because to this point, the Pacific Theater was void of any real mm-hmm. Western interference, so it was basically Asian countries and Russia kind of fighting amongst themselves. They had formed kind of this normal life, and I think that this ability to form a normal life in a, in a foreign country brought them a sort of comfort. They, you know, they were experiencing uh, new people, new cultures, new drinks, um, new food. It was a constant change that they were experiencing, but it was a really calm experience until the day that the Japanese came on to the island and, and started taking the
1: prisoners. All right. Uh, December 10th, 1941, correct?
3: Yeah. And um, right before that, I think a day or two before the, the capture takes place, Gordy writes in his diary that his one regret was that he didn't mail the money order in time for the holidays. Mm-hmm. He was uh, looking to buy a bicycle for his, his youngest son and had not sent the, the money in order for his wife to buy it in time for Christmas Day. So you can see how he had kind of developed this routine of, of normalcy on the island. Uh, it was almost like having a job in a— in a different city. Mm-hmm. But um, ironically, the first time that he encountered the Japanese, what he noticed was his bicycle was outside the house and the Japanese were looking at it. And that's what hinted them that somebody was still stationed there.
1: Right. Because as you would, established before when you were when you were doing the research here, the Japanese forces found a, a surreal Twilight Zone esque situation. They were searching for Americans that survived earlier bombings and when they came to the area, the camp was a ghost town, right? Like everything except for uh, uh, were what, what those little dust devils that blow across main Street? Tumbleweeds, tumbleweeds, yeah, the tumble- tumbleweeds. Uh, yes, yeah, they're everything but the tumbleweeds. This this is a spooky situation. But they're walking by these uh, residencies, these dorms, essentially, and they see this pretty well maintained bicycle. And what happens now?
3: So, one of the um, Japanese soldiers actually steals the bike and rides away on it. At this point, I think that Gordy realizes he cannot escape the Japanese. He now has lost his only mode of transportation and at best a bicycle against whatever soldiers might have would, would hardly stand a chance. So, he convinced his housemate to surrender peacefully. He explained to his housemate that it would be better for us to take a chance and turn in. They weren't combative soldiers, so they weren't necessarily equipped to, to stage any sort of large right. large coup or anything like that. Well, I guess not coup.
1: Resistance. No. Yeah.
3: Uh, and so, as the uh, as the Japanese came by, they surrendered by walking out of the house with their hands raised. He, Gordy's main priority at this time, though, was to sneak cigarettes and his diary with him. So, those were things that he hid in, so- in his friend's socks. He hid the cigarettes, he hid the diary in his clothes, and they walked out. Uh, they were driven to a plaza. Which, which housed the hospital where they were asked to remove their shirts and searched. Somehow they didn't find the cigarettes or the diary in the socks or the, or the pants, but they were basically, you know, left without anything, any personal belongings short of those two.
1: And the, uh, the POWs in the Japanese situation at this time did not enjoy much in the ways of, like, international conventions, like, you know, G- Geneva Conventions, things like treatment of the captured in wartime. And as a matter of fact, these guys are at the very bottom of the social hierarchy, right?
3: Yeah, they—Japanese customs typically don't involve taking prisoners. So in their military code, you want to fight until your last breath— and um, you never want to think about surrendering to the enemy. It's almost a perplexing thought to surrender in Japan. They are taught to fight until, until they pass away. So
0: yeah, I mean they, they're, if they're even shamed in any way, I mean like at least in the old you know feudal, feudal Japan days in the, the Samurai, I mean, they would commit ritual suicide in front of everybody if they were defeated in some way or like you know, to shame their family. I mean, that was absolutely part of their
3: culture. It makes sense. Yeah, and and we see it even later with things like kamikaze pilots. So it's relatively odd to have kind of accept a peaceful surrender and accept prisoners. Because if you are fighting a war, it's also just another thing to consider. How are we going to take care of them? How are they going to house them? So what we see is Gordy and his fellow captured um, prisoners, they are taken to a hospital in Guam. Hospital can kind of act as a as a makeshift prison, based on the way it's set up. But there there isn't really uh, an infrastructure set up to take care of these prisoners. We see a lot of abuse. Gordy describes an instance of being punched with a belt buckle while brushing his teeth. Yikes! Um, he doesn't yeah. really
0: it makes me cringe.
3: Yeah, it's uh, probably on the bottom of my list of, of things. To be no, done yeah, my teeth. Uh, any,
0: any teeth things are always uh, a real red flag for me. Um, yeah, and there was all kinds of other mistreatment that he witnessed
3: as well. Yeah, I mean, the hospitals did have nice rooms, but they removed all the beds, so that's just one aspect of this kind of prison environment that the Japanese were looking to create. They stayed in this hospital for about two days before they were moved to a Catholic church, where food was even more limited. So they had been receiving uh, two meals of ping-pong-sized potatoes and a slice of bologna. Less than a month later, Gordy had written that they were, they were boarding a ship, and this kind of signaled the end of, of freedom for him. Uh, he was leaving the country that he'd started to feel at home in over the past few years, and now he's headed to a foreign country
1: for an uncertain amount of time. Out of the frying pan into the fire, or perhaps we should say out of the frying pan onto the hibachi, right? Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime.
2: Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
0: You know, Ben, I gotta say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post clean clarity you get, where you're like, "Man, how have I been
1: living like this? What's wrong with me?" <laughs> you're right. Noel. it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for fifteen bucks a month when you purchase a three month plan, it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk,
0: text, and data for fifteen bucks a month.
1: See Mint Mobile for details. They take these POWs to Japan where things get worse and worse. Uh, and this, this is interesting because I was looking through some of your research on this, right? And I notice, like you said at the top of the show in his diary, he lists, uh, he keeps track of things like his income. And he continues to do this in the Japanese prison but we're still, I don't know, we have some speculation on what he was doing. Most, a lot of people in prison don't have a job like that.
3: Yeah, it, it is odd that he was able to notate re- still receiving income. And um, it appeared that he was able to work for different people, maybe doing odd jobs and bonus jobs within the prison. The conditions in Japan were, as you can expect, poor. They didn't have prisons set up. Their only source of heat was actually a small hibachi. Uh, made of ceramics. Uh, the heat wasn't really able to keep the prisoners warm. It, it kind of just turned into a um, a cause of, of actual physical headaches from all the carbon monoxide that was coming from the hibachis. There was also sanitation issues, um, things like a long slit cut in the floor that was just the toilet. Mm. But despite the living conditions, he does note that uh, that he is being paid. He doesn't state where it comes from. But based on based on reading that um, that journal that he wrote, and also I was able to find some books of people who were actually captured in Guam at the same time as him, and they note that they were able to work small jobs or work extra hours, um, whether it was farming or or manufacturing, mm-hmm. to earn a little bit of extra money. So I would assume his his situation is the same. But he does talk about creating a sort of a. A barter system by stockpiling cigarettes and later selling or trading them. That also is likely a source of income that he had by, um, you know, kind of hoarding cigarettes as he had them and using them as a kind of a leverage tool later on. That allowed him to gain a little bit of power kind of in the, in the prison socioeconomic life he was able to swap and buy things in secret, and it was also, like I said, possibly he's being paid on his table. Like um, he could he could cook for Japanese officers who didn't feel like cooking for themselves. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be uh, a job that some prisoners were able to do to earn some money, kind of in
1: secret. Now, at this time, he was still allowed to send and receive mail. Is that correct? I I don't believe so. Okay, because I know he he would write letters sort of as addressed to his family, but they weren't actually going anywhere, right?
3: Yeah, he had, he'd, he'd write in his journal uh, little letters that never were removed from his journal. They were just kind of kept in there mm-hmm. um, as a way to feel like he was communicating, possibly. And what is odd, around this time, his family was actually notified that, uh, that he was likely dead by the Red Cross. Oh, wow. So with that lack, absence in communication from him and that notification— Um, His family back home was starting to, well, most likely feared the worst. They were uh, uh, presuming him dead and were looking at, you know, moving on with, with their life, which is pretty difficult. While Gordy was still kind of doing the repetitive days in the prison, which started to mess with him physically and mentally. He was eating the same thing every day. He was working on farms and in steel factories. He didn't know when it would end, if it would end, if he would live to see it end. And I think that lack of hope Mm-hmm. Was kind of uh, making it difficult for him, especially around Christmas. Which, again, if you remember at the top of the podcast, we talked about him trying or forgetting to send a money order to his wife for a bicycle. Well, this Christmas marked about a year since he'd been held captive, and he was he missed writing letters to his family. But he, uh, in his notebook, he would write. And there about how he, guilty he felt about missing the important events. Mm-hmm. If you look in the calendar, and we'll post some images of of his calendar, he'll notate all the birthdays he misses. And it's it's really sad to see he also notates medical issues he has, um, teeth he lost, all, all sort of sorts of interesting things on there. One interesting thing that he did keep in his calendar was he would notate when he shaved his his beard. And at, for a while, he actually had a beard growth count that he was he was working on growing out a beard. It became a little bit of a distraction for him. And whenever he was asked to shave his beard, he would typically write about it in his journal and express some, some frustration that they were trying to take away one thing that he can control. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to create some sort of rhythm and meaning for himself in his life and through writing in this journal and keeping a calendar. But the days were still strenuous um, and— you know, the diary provided some relief, but it really was kind of a small thing um, in the in the grand scheme of things.
1: Of course, he also wrote about revenge fantasies, right, and uh, hopes for uh, hopes for retribution.
3: Yeah, if you recall, when he was captured, he convinced his housemate to go peacefully, so he really didn't have a, a violent streak or an aggressive streak. It appeared before being captured, but towards the end of his journal, you start to see things like him saying that he would like to uh, watch them die or be the one that kills them. He starts to talk about uh, about in in pretty physically gruesome detail or very specific detail about how he would like to harm them. Yeah, I mean I can relate to that. Sure, I mean that's how long was he in prison total? It, at this point? It was—at uh, this point, when he starts writing about it, it's about a year. That's, yeah. that's,
0: that's enough? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'd make it that long without thinking some pretty pretty uh, impure thoughts about what i want to do to the folks that were, like, torturing me and making me sleep on the floor and, you know, all of this stuff. It just seems very, very, uh, very awful.
1: I think a year is more than enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if—I'm <laughs> sure we have people listening now who have kept journals and diaries— who are not in a military prison situation, right? And they probably already have some, some pretty heartfelt, uh, graphic, angry things in their own life experience uh, during peacetime. It was interesting to me, Ryan, the story of Miyazaki, who was like one of the big bads for Gordy, at least.
3: Yeah, Miyazaki, who was actually the person who punched Gordy with the belt buckle earlier while brushing his teeth— he is—he's uh, brought up a couple of times throughout this journal. One time, he writes that I hope he gets killed in the first air raid here, and I hope that I will be here to see it. So that kind of gives you an example of he not only wants wishes death upon him, but he also would like to witness it, mm-hmm. which is, I think, to me, the the ultimate uh, disdain for somebody. And what's really interesting is that Donald Giles, who's the author of Captive of a Rising Sun, which is his memoir um, that he wrote while being captured with Gordy, he doesn't mention Gordy specifically in the book, but it's really interesting because they mention a lot of the same characters. So while they may not have been necessarily close enough to write about each other, they were having a shared experience within this prison. Again, like we said, he was really non-combative. He was a He was willfully surrendering to them. Now he's moved towards wishing death upon Japanese guards.
1: Yeah. This is weird, too, because we can kind of see this inner world that has been constructed, right? Because whenever people are isolated from the larger world, we sort of conform to the size of our container, right? In every sense of the word. So he's monitoring things as closely as he can so he doesn't get lost in the sameness and the routine. And one thing. It's fascinating here is like many people who are imprisoned, he is trying ardently to learn any news of the larger world, right? And he figures out some ways to do this, but it's not as simple as, you know, hopping on a phone or hopping on a computer or reading a newspaper even. He has to kind of guess based on the changing behavior of what? The guards? The authorities?
3: Yeah, he would often assume that the way that he was being treated, if he was being treated positively, it meant that it's possible that the Americans were winning, that the Japanese keeping him captive might be coming to an end. And as he's being treated worse, he would assume the opposite, so that the Japanese were winning the Pacific Theater. Kind of towards the end, close to his release, he actually writes that, uh, he says, my God, we must be winning the war, because there was one day where he— went to a concert that they held there. He had free cigarettes and a large meal, which was definitely not the, the common situation for him in the prison.
1: Well, let's cut back to the good old U.S. of A. Let's go across the pond. And I believe earlier you said that uh, many of Gordy's relatives were convinced that he was dead, and that was based off the uh, the estimation of the Red Cross, right?
3: Yeah, so they were unable to verify whether he was taken captive or killed in a previous bombing raid, so that he was assumed dead by the Red Cross. This had an impact on on multiple members of his family. Jimmy Carter, it kind of was the final nail in the coffin, I guess, or the the final thing that made him decide to enlist in the Navy because he wanted to uh, honor his uncle who'd paid the ultimate sacrifice. During his time in the military, or so he believed at the time, World War II was still going strong. So at 17, he he enlisted, um, which was definitely a, a major life change and is something the sailor identity is, is actually something that was really important to Jimmy Carter in the early part of his life. As far as the rest of his family goes, his wife, getting the news that her husband had died with her two young children, she was living in San Francisco across the country from family that can help. So she moved back to rural Georgia to be close to Tom's family and the Carters as well. She was living there for a little while until she found out that he was confirmed or supposedly confirmed dead. So from the time he left to the time he found out, she was spending the time in Georgia. But once she found out he was dead, she decided to move back to San Francisco and try to continue her life there where she actually got remarried um, and started a new life. Now. As you guys know, he does return home. So this this remarriage kind of sets up an awkward situation. So (laughs) um, upon his return, he weighed less than 100 pounds. So obviously it had taken a toll on him. Dorothy, when she found out he came home, she offered to annul her current marriage, which is, I don't know. How do you guys feel about that?
1: I feel like it's a nice thought. Yeah. But that's that. Some things can't be mended. It's a little too, too little, too late kind of situation, I think. Right? Yeah, it feels like maybe she was doing what she thought was the right thing to do.
3: Yeah, many in the in the Carter family thought she got married too soon. It was kind of a common thing that they they blame uh, his his first wife Dorothy with with contributing to his mental anguish and depression that he experienced in the rest of his life while Jimmy Carter actually spoke about this on the campaign trail, is something that is way more nuanced than just being remarried. Because if you assume that your husband's dead, yeah, especially after a couple of years of, um, of him being detained, you're going to assume that you, well, you're going to want to continue your life. You're going to want to find some sense of normalcy, whether that's a husband, a new job, a steady place to live, Sure, um, there's going to usually be change involved in that. And I'm sure she wasn't expecting her husband to reappear. So I do think it was a sweet gesture, but it is one of those, I don't think there is a winning situation in any of it mm-hmm. um, because someone's going to be terribly bothered by by a decision that's made. And unfortunately, uh, Dorothy was put in kind of that impossible situation.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a rock and a hard place, as you said, Kobayashi Maru for the Star Trek fans out there. Thomas Watson Gordy, I have to say I think he made the right decision by saying no, don't, don't annul your marriage just because you feel like it's the right thing to do. Do what you truly want to do. And he lived out the rest of his life in the U.S., uh, he passed away in 1975, and by the time he had passed away, Jimmy Carter's uh, career was already in like he had seen the career begin from the Navy days, so on and and I think it's safe to say that for a long time, Jimmy Carter considered Gordy to be like one of his personal heroes, right?
3: Yeah, he looked at Gordy as someone who was willing to take chances and to change his life and to stand up for what he believed in. And that's something that Carter carried with him, whether it was joining the Navy at 17, running for governor, being involved in politics in general. Carter was someone who wanted to provide for his family by carving his own lane in life rather than relying on his family's peanut farm, which he does go and help with in the future, but not before he's created his own identity so he's someone who even at a young age was looking to eclipse the shadows of his parents which is a pretty good trait to have and is something he picked up from his uncle who uh there is a little bit of a happy ending he does remarry at some point in the in the final 30 years and so he does have a partner and she was actually pivotal in encouraging him to write the manuscript to try to process the feelings because he did become sort of a racial curmudgeon mm. in, a, in a way, mm. a racist curmudgeon. Towards the end of his life, he you really couldn't bring him around uh, people of color, particularly Asians, because he would trigger this this PTSD type feeling, which reminds me of like Cotton Hill from King of the Hill, where he would just have these mm. like fire flashbacks apparently. just
2: be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under seventeen not a minute without parent, only in theaters May seventeenth.
3: It's worth noting, though, that while his life was difficult, he did get to live, uh, you know, a long life. He did get to come back to America, which he was seeing rapidly a change. I can imagine what it would be like to leave during the Great Depression and return once the economic boom had had kind of turned yeah. America around, you know.
1: Very different world.
3: When he left, Model Ts were like the only car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mid-40s, we're starting to see real, real car models. We're, we're starting to see uh, modern cities really grow and boom. And part of that boom was— uh, was the tiki bar boom? Uh, yeah, one of my favorite things in the whole
1: world. So now we're going to we're ending on a more positive note. Possibly. Yeah, let's
3: yeah. let's bring it let's bring it back around. And something that many people brought from the Pacific was that memory of of a tropical drink, um, kind of a, a shady, dark place, which they would use to escape the heat, and it was somewhere where they can kind of just hide away from from the day-to-day life. Uh, sometimes it's from the frenzies of war. Uh, sometimes it's just a, a way to pass the time. But as uh, soldiers returned, they returned kind of with this trend started by Don Beach, who opened Don the Beachcomber in Hollywood, California in 1934.
1: Real name, Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant.
0: Right. And I want to say, Ben, you and I went to a pretty old-school Hollywood tiki bar together yeah. once called Tiki tiki tea, Tiki-Tai? Yeah. And I believe that beachcomber recipe for the Mai Tai is, like, a big deal. It's, like, considered, like, the holy grail of, like, Mai Tai recipes.
1: There's a friend of ours you've got to meet, Ryan. His name is Robert Lamb. He's a co-host of a couple of different shows here, Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention. He's also a huge Tiki fanatic, so whenever on the road with him, Actually, you know what? If you ever just meet him and run into him, ask him about some tiki places. Make sure you have like 30 minutes and uh, make sure you're ready to drive somewhere with him or fly.
0: <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, this story is going to end up at one of my favorite places in all of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Trader Vic's.
1: Yeah, uh,
3: Trader Vic's was kind of the the second tiki bar to really establish itself in American culture. Trader Vic's uh, incorporated food as well as the Mai Tai and the other mm-hmm. drinks. They brought over the the famous poo poo platter. T. <laughs> Sorry, I can't not. And Trader Vix is is kind of the the legacy of this this old guard of of tiki bars. It's the one that, as Noel said, we still have here in Atlanta. It's a great establishment. It's really exciting during Dragon Con. Oh, yeah, I was there this sure. time around. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's it's a it's a place to be. Um, got a
1: live band, which I always love. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and, um, you know, we're seeing this resurgence here in Atlanta, but there was a period of time, kind of 60s through the 90s, when tiki bars were considered not in vogue. Um, So, you started seeing a lot of them close. Fortunately, as we know, they've made a comeback, and we, we see them, particularly around 2015. 2016, we see a new desire to escape.
0: And it's so lucky that some of the historical ones are still around, you know. Like Trader Vic's is pretty much as it's always been. There's a place in Portland called Alibi that's like another older one. Maybe it is circa the '60s or '70s though.
1: That's the craze. There are a lot of there are a lot more on the West Coast. Too. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah,
3: the the '60s and '70s still had tiki bars. We were just seeing the. The bigger brands, um, their, their growth kind of slowed down. I see. Um, kind of 80s and 90s, you're not seeing any new Tiki bars open. But what is interesting about the Tiki bar formula is it's based on cheap rum, which at the time— Was uh, it in the Pacific, was it? It wasn't in the Pacific, <laughs> yeah. So so Don, who was kind of a, a world traveler, he wasn't necessarily in the military. That's not how he—well, he was later, but that's not how he found— Don the Beachcomber's uh, Mai Tai recipe is he uh, thought, what is the cheapest liquor I can get my hands on? And at that point in the Caribbean's rum was, was very inexpensive and very sweet and worked as a fine substitute for what he had tried when he was in the Pacific. Back to this sort of escapism and the, the fall of the tiki boom, what we see in, in 1989, um, current President Donald Trump He made a purchase of the Plaza Hotel in New York. He doesn't own it anymore, thankfully, but what he did was close an original Trader Vic's um, in Midtown Manhattan, which is pretty disappointing because uh, it would be really cool to have an original. Totally. And he
1: he thought it was tacky, right? Or he said it wasn't on brand or something.
3: Yeah, he said it it was um it was tacky and it wasn't in line with what he would like to achieve. You can read the original 1989 um, article where it's literally titled "Trump to Close a Tacky Trader vix and the New York Times. So it's uh, I'm sorry, Trump
0: called it tacky.
3: Yeah, yikes! <laughs> That's tough. talk about the pot calling the kettle gold-plated, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's definitely ironic. Um, and, like, Trump has become sort of uh, tacky and out of fashion. What we're seeing is is this resurgence in, in tiki bars. But what we can't forget about is the impact this situation had on the island of Guam. Mm-hmm. Guam, like many territories or colonial islands, it never really gets a fair shake. You know, they're occupied, they become an advantageous piece of land, whether for resources or military reasons. But when it was time to take care of the citizens of Guam who had lost their property, their belongings, a lot of them their lives, the agreement was that Japan was not responsible. America agreed to assume responsibility. But due to high illiteracy rates, a language barrier between the U.S. Navy and locals, no newspaper or telephone communication, and only a six month window to file claims. Many were left without even knowing that there was an option for compensation under the Guam Meritorious Claims Act of 1945. So you're still seeing this kind of today and it, and it ties into modern history as we think about um, what is owed to, to people who are marginalized. So in 2005, this came up again and, we had a had a divisive president at this time who was looking to uh, reboot the economy post nine eleven, and they were slashing any sort of superfluous or what they felt to be extracurricular uh, financial commitments. So we're seeing this act get a lot of support in Congress to to start to provide reparations to the island and its people. But his deputy assistant secretary of the Interior for insular affairs. David B. Cohen said that reasonable people might disagree in good faith, however, about the appropriate level of financial compensation to be paid by the federal government for damages that were caused not by the fault of the United States, but rather by the fault of a foreign occupying power.
1: See, okay, I get, I understand why they would make that argument, but it reminds me of the old quotation, you know, when elephants wage war, only the grass suffers. The there is an entire, not just one episode. There's an entire series worth of topics about the the chaos wrought upon this area of the world these island nations uh, before World War II, after World War II. Uh, you know, it also reminds me how here in the U.S., nobody really talks about the uh, U.S. colonization of the Philippines, right? There's so much stuff that we forget here. And we can't really prove this, but it's strange to think uh, whether Gordy's adventures influenced Carter's policy later on. It definitely inspired him to do stuff, right? But did he was he thinking of his uncle when he— was working with hostage situations, stuff like that. We don't know, and we probably never will unless Jimmy Carter decides to mention it one day.
3: Yeah, we should try. He just had a talk the other day at Emory University. We should try to pop in on one and yeah. just bring this random question. Um, you know, something else that's that's important to think about in this is the way that these large nations, America, England, France, Germany, all these large countries who have colonized nations in the past When they cause damages to people who aren't major players in the game but actually are kind of vital to the creation of the wealth that these countries are desiring. So if we look at the enslaved people in America and their descendants asking for reparations, it's a similar situation. You can make the argument that, well, the Confederate nations, they were the ones fighting for slavery. It's over. Oh, I see. We see that argument come sometimes. We also— See the argument of well, that was a long time ago, or that was previous generations doesn't have anything to do with me. But we see the the problems that systemic and institutionalized racism and oppression have caused throughout the world, and that's why we have massive inequality today throughout nations.
1: Mm-hmm. And and also we have to say, of course, that these kind of impacts are multi generational. They don't stop just because people die. You know, it affects the children and their children's children and so on. And this, okay, so this is is our story, and I think this gives us some insight into President Carter former President Carter, that uh, would surprise most people. Now, here in Georgia, of course, we tend to know a little bit more about Carter than the average bear uh, because, again, he's got the Carter Center and the library here and teaches Sunday school here and speaks at Emory here. Uh, You know, sometimes you can see him at the right restaurant. But even here in Georgia, a lot of people are unaware of the tremendous influence that his uncle had on the young Jimmy Carter Ryan, thank you so much for returning to the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where can people uh, learn more about your institution, the work you guys are doing?
3: Um, You can follow us on Instagram at GSU underscore MHP. That's the Georgia State Master's Program of Historic Preservation. Heritage preservation is what our program is called. But we kind of dabble in all sorts of public history and preservation topics.
1: Fantastic. And while you are on the internet, folks, this does conclude our episode, but not our show. The story continues. You can be part of it if you check out our Facebook group, Ridiculous Historians. You can also find us as a group and as individuals on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Ben Bullen on Instagram, and I am at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. Twitter.
0: And I am just a gramster. You can find me at how now,
1: Noel Brown. Big thanks to our super producer, Casey Pegram, to Alex Williams, who composed our track. And it's weird because, you know, now you're in person and usually when we're talking about you, you're, you're sort of existing in the ether of ideas. But you're a real person. You're right here, right now. Ryan Barish, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, in all his
0: Technicolor tie-dye glory. Nice call back. Thanks, man. Big thanks to Gabe Luzier, our other research associate and compatriot, comrade, brother-in-arms whatever you want to call it. Uh, thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Thanks to Christopher Haciotis, here in Spirit. Uh, thanks to the Quizster for not showing up once again, but I have a feeling that we're, our luck is going to run out on that very soon. Uh, and <laughs> Thanks to you, Ben, for having such a well-coiffed a bit of facial hair going on today. It's very, very dapper looking.
1: Thanks, man. Uh, this is something that we don't see a lot because this is an audio podcast, but my favorite thing to do nowadays is to flip the the phone, the phone headphones over so I look like either Jordy LaForge or Cyclops. What do you
0: guys think? Yeah.
1: Or a little bit like Robocop, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah. There we go.
0: Picture it. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25 until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.